0: I have a snitch that has told me that in some of your courses that you teach at the law school, you have many different creative and innovative ways to kill your ex.
1: (laughs) Wow, you really do have some, like, inside information.
0: So you aren't denying it. (laughs)
1: And you know the funny thing is is that my ex and I are actually very close friends So it's it's fine to have ways to kill him So so. it's not
0: terroristic threats or anything like
1: that It's not, it's not, nobody will ever have to, you know, um, testify against me Welcome to Trust Hacker The podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys Hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle And seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason
0: Welcome to Trust Hacker, where we explore the tricks and traps used by the country's best elder and special needs law attorneys when tackling complex trust, tax, or other practice issues. Trust hacking is the term I use to describe any shortcut, skill, or insight that will help you crush it in your practice. In other words, a trust hack is anything that solves a trust or tax or other practice problem in an inspirational way or ingenious way. Today, we're chatting with a NALA board member who has been teaching law for over 20 years at Stetson University College of Law, one of the premier elder law programs for aspiring elder law attorneys. In addition to teaching, she's been co-chair of the Center for Excellence in Elder Law and editor of the International Journal on Aging, Law, and Policy. Along the way, she has picked up a number of major faculty awards, including the one I think she should be proudest of, Award for Most Inspirational Teacher from the SBA. She's been particularly active on the state and national level in the area of professionalism and ethics, and has been recognized by the Florida Supreme Court for her work in the area. Among her many publications, she's co-author of the ABA publication, Ethics and and the practice of elder law. Prior to taking up teaching, she was a state prosecutor in Colorado and an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Florida in that office's Major Crimes and Public Corruption Unit. I'm delighted to have been able to talk our guest into appearing because we're going to learn some things. In this episode, we're going to hack, hmm, is it Professor Rebecca Morgan? Nope, Professor Roberta, a.k.a. Bobby Flowers. Bobby, welcome to The Trust Hacker.
1: Oh, it's good to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. Let's just jump right into it. You started your legal career as a state and federal prosecutor. I did. How did you get into being a faculty member in an elder law program, for heaven's sakes? You know,
1: um, I think that what's always interesting is is that exact question. How how did your career path lead you there? And, and my career path was certainly not straight. It was kind of windy. I came to law school um, because I thought I wanted to be a child advocate based on some experiences I had before law school. Um, went to law school, ended up not ever being a child advocate, but being a prosecutor for many years. And then decided that I really wanted to teach and so ended up at this wonderful institution where we are very much interested in teaching people how to practice law, not just think about it. And started my career here as an advocacy professor. Um, I was the head of our advocacy center, which is basically our skills training um, and our trial competition teams. And had this wonderful colleague named Rebecca Morgan, I'm sure many of um, our listeners know her. Professor Morgan is one of those career builders for people where she recognizes something that might be of interest to somebody before they even understand that it's of interest to them. So she kept pulling me into elder law ethics and um, issues with regard to exploitation and issues with regard to um, our growing need for skills training with um, elder law attorneys and attorneys um, with regard to people with disabilities. And slowly convinced me that the people that work in Elder Law are really very, very incredibly nice group of people that they're very satisfied lawyers, and so got me um, over here into the elder law world, and I haven't regretted it um, a moment um, because, as you know, Bob, elder law attorneys are a, a real unique group of people. Um, they really care about their clients. they care about what they're doing. And because of that, they're very satisfied um, in their in their legal careers. So that's how I got to elder law, um, and I love it. Um, and I think we do a lot of very interesting things here at Stetson uh, because of the collaboration between Professor Morgan and I.
0: You said something very interesting a moment ago, and I may not have it right, uh, that Stetson teaches attorneys how to, pra- or would-be attorneys, how to practice law and not just about the law or something to that effect. Exactly. How do you do that?
1: You know, we um, really try to dig down deep into what are the real skills that a lawyer needs. Um, so we have a lot of very practical experiences for our students. Um, two weeks ago, I did a weekend course where the students basically took apart a guardianship case, um, practiced how they would um, talk to a mediator if the guardianship uh, went through a mediation, what kinds of things they would need to be explaining to the mediator, and then then talk about what they would need to do if that went through litigation and, and had to actually do a guardianship hearing. So we dug down deep in past just what's the guardianship law uh, and talked about how can you be persuasive in those different um, hearings and types of hearings. So what we really try to do is take substantive law and have the students really, you know, I like to call it get down and dirty with it, Um, practice, you know, using it in some uh, effective way to hopefully help their clients um, obtain the results that they need. So that's kind of what we do here at Stetson. We're very much about how do I advocate for clients regardless of the kind of case or the kind of proceeding um, or the substantive law,
0: so. You had mentioned that um, Rebecca had is big into career builders and mm-hmm. and an application of that to a faculty member, you. Does yeah. that apply to students as well? These students that oh, wander in and have no idea what they want to do other than be a lawyer.
1: Oh yeah. Um we spend a lot of time um mentoring our students, especially those students that have um decided to be in our elder law concentration. Uh, Professor Morgan and I think it's very important that not only professors prepare them, but also open doors for them. So we do a lot of um, uh, attempts to help them network with other people. Um, If you see us at a a conference, we will usually have a binder with our students' resumes. So if we have somebody say, you know, I might be looking for an associate, we're going to be able to hand you a resume. um, Because it's real important to us that our students um, have the opportunity to do the kind of law they want to do. Um so that's kind of a motivator for both Becky and I is to to make sure that our students get at least that first job out that can help them in a career that they can enjoy.
0: I'm going to ask you a question you probably don't want to hear. Uh but it might be a a, a brutal type truth out there. Let's face it. Many of our colleagues look upon ethics and professionalism, which we're going to talk about more, that's that's an area of concentration for you look upon those areas with a certain amount of distaste or disdain or a necessary evil. It's mm-hmm. that one or two hours they have to pick up every year, or every other year for CLE purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you respond to that, that it's not real law, it's not something you really need to, you know, it's a nuisance?
1: Right. Well, I will tell you, I think I have two points on that. The first point would be that absolutely we get that sense, especially in law school. Students just really don't understand the importance of ethics and professionalism because they haven't had to live it. Um, I would say my second point would be I haven't experienced that as much with elder law attorneys. I will tell you that before I did CLEs for elder law attorneys, I did CLEs for prosecutors and prosecutors really did believe that it was just, you know, that they didn't really need ethical training. They knew what was right. You know, they they had learned the Ten Commandments and in Sunday school or wherever. Um, But elder law attorneys, I think, recognize how very difficult and unique the ethical issues are in an elder law practice. And I think that is predominantly because they recognize that usually or a lot of times a client that walks in to their office is going to have one of two very unique problems really in the elder law area first of all the client's going to be suffering possibly some diminished capacity issues which raise some very difficult ethical issues or they're going to come in accompanied by either a family member or a caregiver or even a friend those two very unique issues do not arise as much in other practice areas. So it's been my experience that if you have the right way of teaching an ethics course, you can engage elder law attorneys uh, very intensely in the conversation, because they really do recognize that every day something happens where they have to at least step back a second and say, okay, how am I going to do this ethically? So I think elder law um, is is one of those areas where lawyers really do recognize that need. And I I think that's reflected in the fact that our national organization has written its own aspirational standards. Um, And I have had the pleasure of being on that committee. And let me tell you that, you know, for the rewrite, the uh, 10-year-old rewrite, and that has been such an engaged engaging conversation um, over the last two years to work on redoing those aspirational standards so that we can really raise the bar again. So there's not a lot of national organizations that have their own professionalism standards. Um, you know, ACTEC has the commentaries on the model rules, but that's not aspirational. Um, so we as elder law attorneys really do look to aspire to a higher level of professionalism and and that reflects Um, in most CLEs that deal with professionalism and ethics with regard to elder law attorneys.
0: And that's something I hope NALA can do uh, with the rewrite of the aspirational standards. I might be wrong. This may not be fair of me to say this, but I got the impression that the aspirational standards, which I I read over in draft form and, and thought was great and was asked to comment informally on it. And I thought they were great. But my frustration was they got done and then they kind of went onto people's library shelves and nothing much happened. Yeah. And I don't know how you get over that problem.
1: Right. And and I don't I don't know that you ever do. um, But I think what we just continue need to continue to try to do is to bring those ideals that are contained within within those aspirational standards back to the forefront of people's thinking every time we have an ethics presentation. You know, every time we go to North Carolina or where, whatever state we go to, we want to keep bringing those, um, those standards, those aspirations to people's thoughts. Because, you know, we're very excited. One of the things that we've added to the aspirational standards, I'll just give you a little preview, is we've added a whole new section called Holistic Approach and really talking about the need for elder law attorneys to look at their clients very holistically and that that's an aspiration and what does that look like and what things should you be considering when you have a client sitting in front of you so we're very excited about that new section and again it really is about bringing those ideas to the forefront so that people are intentionally thinking about them even if the standards sit on the shelf Um, It's just every now and then you get poked with the, well, if you thought about this, well, it's contained in the aspirational standards, maybe that's the best we can hope for.
0: Well, one way to stay out of trouble from a malpractice standpoint, one of the most obvious ones is do technically competent work. But it also seems to me that another good way to stay out of trouble is to heed the aspirational standards and the call them the canons of ethics or the rules of professional responsibility or whatever. It's just a great way to avoid malpractice.
1: Right. I, I will tell you, we are seeing, um, an increase in people using the, uh, grievance process in different states, um, as a way to try to bring opposing counsel into line. We've seen that specifically with guardianship issues where, um, a, a, uh, Someone who is not happy with the guardianship decision now is um, filing grievances against the uh, attorney that maybe represented the ward or maybe represented one of the other family members. So we are seeing even really good lawyers, um, people using the grievance process against them. And so we want to continue to talk about, you know, how they can avoid that. But the truth is. And, Bob, you know this, that, you know, if, a, if the opponent wants to argue that you acted um, unethically, they may not necessarily feel like they have to have any rule that they can point to. They just may try to throw mud and see how much it how much sticks.
0: Tell us about the Center for Excellence in Elder Law. What is that?
1: The, the center here at Stetson is kind of the umbrella over which we have all of our elder law programming, and we have some very interesting elder law programming that we're very proud of. Um, one of the things that um, we created several years ago is our LLM in Elder Law. Um, and as you know, Bob, it is a totally online um, Elder Law course. It is a course that really tries to combine both the very practical with the very high level um, considerations of elder law um, as a as a doctrinal area of law so we try to get our students to not only um, maybe create forms that they can use in their practice but also to think at a higher level with regard to elder law so we're very pleased to be in our eighth or ninth year of our LLM program. And uh, so that's one thing that we have here. We also have um, a lot of CLE programming. As you know, we have our special needs trust, which is in its 17th year. Um, I always like to say that uh, Becky Morgan knew special needs trust was cool before everybody else knew it was cool. And so um, that happens every October. We have um, 400 to 500 of our best friends come and hang out with us and, and learn what is the newest thing with regard to special needs trust. Also, of course, under our Elder Law uh, Center, we have our um, training of our JD students. We have a concentration in Elder Law that the students can take, which means they take most of their electives in the Elder Law area. Um, We also have a Elder Law Society where our students do a lot of pro bono work out in the community. A couple years ago, they were bowling, um, we bowling, of course, with the seniors at the Senior Center, which, of course, they never won a game. Um, we have what we call our masterpiece project, where we go to nursing homes and paint with our elderly. So the students uh, do a lot of their pro bono work um, with the elderly. We have started this year a program that we're very excited about. We have created an eight-week program to train adult protective service investigators, not the lawyers, but the investigators, to really give them a multidiscipline look at the elderly and help them to understand some of the unique issues with the elderly.
0: Are you talking about like even law enforcement type investigators?
1: No, these are, these are the, um, adult protective service investigators. They are the ones that are on the civil side. Usually they're the first responders when there is a report of abuse or neglect. So they go out to the homes, um, as the first responders to determine whether there is, uh, a exploitation, issue that may involve law enforcement, if there is some sort of self-neglect that may require services on the person's part. and um, So we uh, have now trained um, in two jurisdictions. We're looking at the other two jurisdictions here in, in Florida to train Adult Protective Service investigators, and that's been a very exciting, not only kind of a substantive part of it, but kind of in the same vein as we were talking about earlier, we're also te- teaching them the skills the skills of interviewing people that have um, different um, cognitive levels, um, the issues of being observant when they walk into a house, one of some of the things they need to see is red flags. Um, And so that's been a very exciting new program that we have put into place in the last year uh, to work with that group of people who are really our first responders on elder uh, abuse and, and more importantly actually is neglect. Um, So, we're just kind of the umbrella under which all that programming, and and Becky and I laugh sometimes that we shouldn't be in the same room because we come up with a new idea every time we are. We are looking to hopefully start a um, clinic at our medical center, uh, much like um, the one at Wake Forest, um, so that we can go to where elderly, vulnerable people may be um, in need of services and that our students can learn to deal with them. Um, I could go on and on. We have what we call uh, "wills for warriors," um, where three times a year our students meet with um, veterans and you know veterans that are under a certain um, economic level and who are of a certain age and assist them in very simple wills. Um, and we have the oversight of, of local attorneys. Um, so our students get the opportunity to um, experience what it's like to interview, to get the information, and then to draft the documents. And it's also a great service to our veterans here in um, Pinellas and Hillsborough. So um, we have a lot of things going on and uh, who knows what we'll have next week, but um, that's kind of what we do here at Stetson
0: The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law, and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. TrustChimp offers intensive three-day public benefits tax and trust training sessions described by attendees as intense, and one of the best CLEs ever. All states that have reviewed the Trust Summit materials have approved them for 14 CLE hours. Find out more at trustchimp.com forward slash summits. Well, let me ask you this. At Stetson, I know you see combinations of traditional law students, the ones who hit your doors right after getting their undergraduate degree, and you see your share of non-traditional law students, those who've had some other kind of career before going back to law school. Is, is elder law still the domain of either the non-traditional student or either that or the veteran attorney out there who has transitioned her practice from some other area into elder law? Or are you seeing more new lawyers actually gravitate to elder law?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question because obviously we um, have a lot of traction with regard to our elder law programming here at Stetson. So we actually see students in the, administ- in the admissions process um, who are coming to Stetson because they want to look into elder law, they're interested in elder law. So we are seeing a new generation. And um, in, in most of the time, as is, is true of our LLM students, most of the time it was some personal experience with an aging parent or an aging grandparent that has gotten people interested in this area of law because they see that, that there's such a need for lawyers that have that holistic approach, that approach of understanding that it's not just the legal issues that are facing the elderly, but a a variety of other issues that they need to help them with. So um, we are seeing um, the next generation becoming interested in elder law um, at a a younger age, at at the very beginning of their careers. But I will tell you, we we do also see, um, especially in our LLM program, a lot of transitioning attorneys that have practiced law, um, you know, maybe have been litigators for years, have decided they don't want to fight anymore. They really want to uh, be consensus builders and find elder law to to fit that bill. So we do see some transition, transitioning attorneys, um, but we are seeing a new generation that's interested in elder law. And that's a reflection of the fact that elder law has now grown into an area of law where people really are interested in it. I have a funny story, though. I, we mentor all of our first-year students, and I had a student in the other day to talk about what classes they wanted, and my question was, well, what kind of law do you want to do? And she said, well, I think I want to do family law, because I want to do, like, wills and and trusts and <laughs> guardianships. And I said, well, that's not family law. That's elder law. She goes, it is? And I go, well, yeah, let's talk about elder law, right? Um, I had another uh, student in who was talking about that she really wanted to make a difference she was really into public interest and and, and really wanted to be a, a public defender. And she started talking about how she wanted to figure out what causes people to, you know, be in, you know, um, have these issues and how can I pre-plan for people so their issues are better. And I'm like, well, you might want to think about elder law as opposed to being a public defender because public defenders really don't have the time to go back and try to help people plan ahead of time to avoid those problems. We do that in elder law. So it's kind of fun to uh, introduce elder law to a variety of different um, students that hadn't really ever thought of it. um, And then suddenly are like, yeah, that sounds like fun. It's like, yeah, it is fun.
0: You mentioned the attorneys that um, one type of attorney being perhaps tired of litigation and fighting it, you know, the contentiousness of it all and everything and going into elder law, which raises an interesting point. You're a former trial attorney. Do you think there are enough elder law attorneys out there who are litigators?
1: Well, we certainly are seeing um, a new group of litigators um, out there. I think that we're going to see that that trend continue, um, because I think, as you know, Bob, we're seeing an increase in very um, contentious litigation, especially in our guardianship area. And so um, I think that the need is going to continue to grow, the problem is that um, we need to figure out a way to train up people in the skills that are necessary to be good um, litigators when it comes to the elderly. And, um, and that's, that's been a real challenge at NALA uh, because when we offer that kind of skills programming, we don't get a lot of people because the traditional NALA members w- most of the time will say, well, I, I don't want to be a litigator. Um, and so we're, Constantly trying to figure out how do we grow up a generation of very, very skilled litigators for our elderly
0: and our vulnerable. So, What's an elder friendly courtroom?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, well, as you know, we created. And you didn't an elder- even
0: put me up to asking. I
1: know it. That's pretty <laughs> exciting. An elder friendly courtroom is a, a courtroom that really looks past what is required under the ADA to really look at ways. To make the courtroom more accessible and the process more accessible to the elderly and people with disabilities. So, for example, if you saw our model courtroom here at Stetson, our LEASER courtroom, um, when you walked in, you might not notice, but on the floor there are um, there are physical cues to where the person needs to go. If you just looked at it, you would think, well, those are just diamonds, but what we have created is a pathway for people who might be in a walker looking down to be able to find a seat. Um, If you went to the podium that's in the middle of the courtroom, you would see that it is large enough for a wheelchair to actually roll into and can be adjusted up or down so that um, an advocate who may have some issues with regard to mobility has the ability to do that. Um, If you look at our witness box, you will notice that there's no step up. You know, uh, for traditional um, courtrooms, we have a step up into the witness box. We use the traditional, can the witness step down? There's really no reason to have that step. And it becomes an obstacle for people with um, mobility issues um, to be able to get in and out of the witness box easily. And especially, obviously, if they're in a wheelchair. So what we tried to do was to bring together a whole lot of different um, ideas into one courtroom that really make the courtroom more accessible um, than just the the ramp you know the ramps or the you know the door um, the push button doors to really think about what kind of experience people who are elderly have of the world and look at the carpeting look at the The air vents, Um, one of the things that we talked very early on with our our architect was, you know, people get very cold, uh, you know, can get chilled. And when you have an air vent that swooshes cold air down on people, um, that's not that. That means I'm going to be more concerned about whether I'm warm or not as opposed to what's going on in the system. So we created um, air vents that are much larger and that have baffles in them. Um, Now, that's not any big deal. You wouldn't even notice that unless you walked in there. But it is a big deal if you have the wrong kind of air conditioning vent blowing um, cold air down on people that are susceptible to chills. So our elder friendly courtroom is really a model of all kinds of ideas that people can take um, back to their courthouses to talk about, well, we could do this and we could do this. We couldn't maybe do everything because it would be too expensive, but we can intentionally think about what our elderly need in our courtrooms. Um, and and as you know, one of the things that you always have to be thinking about as an elder law attorney is, how can I act intentionally to make it better for my clients? Um, and we've seen uh, people come and look at our courtroom and, and think about how they can change their offices um, to incorporate some of those ideas into their offices to make it more comfortable, um, more accessible to their clients. So that that's what a, elder-friendly courtroom is all about. It is trying to intentionally think about those things that are an obstacle to um, people with cognitive disabilities or people with um, physical disabilities to be able to um, have full access to the court system.
0: Well, let's shift gears here for a second. Uh, We are on the trust hacker, so I've got to get into trust. Right. What's the first thing an attorney getting ready to counsel a client about trusts? needs to think about? That's a pretty broad question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but but I'm going to suggest to you that there is something before that question, which is, who's the client? And I think one of the things that we really um, want to think about, which is a very unique ethical issue um, for people dealing in the trust area, is to keep firmly in mind who is the client. Um, Whether the trust has been created already um, or whether the trust is going to be created. Ultimately, who is going to be the person that I need to take direction from, who I need to be thinking about um, protecting? And that's a really difficult issue um, when you're talking about special needs trust. It's a very difficult issue. Um, if I am contacted by a personal injury lawyer who's got a judgment coming down the pike, who wants to put that judgment into some sort of special needs trust in order to provide for that client and still allow that client to be eligible for some uh, government benefits? he's got to really think about who should I be taking directions from? Who should be telling me what sort of trust that is needed or suggesting who should be the trustee or suggesting how that should be structured? Obviously, we are the expert with regard to the creation of that trust, But with regard to those discretionary decisions, who should be making those decisions? Should it be the person who is funding the trust, which may in fact not have um, capacity to give you that information? Or should it be this uh, PI lawyer who has hired you to create this structure? So the first question we always have to answer is, who am I really going to consider my client? Um, If I have a, a, a situation where there is an issue with regard to a payback provision. Um, you know, And the trustee is looking to me to make those kind of decisions at the end of the trust. Um, who is it that I need to benefit? Who is it that I need to consider? Um, who is it that really is the client in this case? So for me, all of the trust area is really about being very intentional about A, defining who the client is for yourself, and B, um, making sure that the client agrees with who is the client, and number three, making sure that all of those non-clients understand who is the client, who am I going to listen to, who am I going to give loyalty to and confidentiality to, and who's going to get communicated with, right, and who is going to be protected at the end of the day if heaven forbid, the trustee uh, begins to act in a way that is counter to the beneficiary of that trust. So all of those issues are kind of the first issue, it seems to me, that trust attorneys need to be thinking about.
0: Well, and let me throw out a a hypo there. Um, Moms in the nursing home are about ready to go into the nursing home, is incapacitated, daughter is her agent under a power of attorney that's broad power of attorney with gifting authority. Mm -hmm. And there is someone in the family, maybe even an in-law or someone who is on social security disability income. And you're saying, here's a great way to get mom eligible for Medicaid. We'll set up a sole benefit trust, transfer all of mom's assets into the sole benefit trust for the benefit of this disabled individual. And, um, what they do with the assets after they're distributed to, to the disabled beneficiary, who cares? That's not my problem. That just seems to open up a whole can of, of, of issues.
1: Absolutely. I, I think absolutely it does. And, and remember that um, our aspirational standards um, really strongly suggest that in that situation, even though there is a power of attorney, um, and it's valid. Let's assume that you let's assume that you checked that and that it is, in fact, valid that the, the attorney really still needs to have a conversation with that mom to make sure that, you know, because capacity is not an all or nothing proposition. And I think sometimes we see a power of attorney and we say, OK, I can just talk to the power of attorney. It's easier, right? There, There's not the same issues as trying to get through with them. It doesn't take as much time. So I'm just going to deal with the power of attorney. I'm going to do what we need to do and I'm going to move on. And I'm going to suggest to your listeners that that really is not um, a good way to go about it, that you really do need to try to have that conversation with the Um, the principal under that power of attorney with mom um, to see whether this is really what she wants Um, and to make sure that you're not moving in a way that um, ultimately is not going to be in the best interest of this person. Because remember, you know, at the end of the day, that money should be used for her benefit mom's benefit not the benefit of the daughter and not to be left until after mom dies and so we want to make sure that you know if there is an issue if if that's not what mom wants or if we can in some way protect those funds with obviously the consent of our client so that those funds can be used for for mom's benefit we need to be talking about doing that
0: well where do you draw the line between Medicaid asset protection planning and in elder financial abuse,
1: oh, that oh oh my gosh now that that's a, a topic that you can talk about for for years, right? Um, and the where and the place you draw the line is you make sure that the person whose assets, first of all, are going to be transferred wants that. Not just that the power of attorney wants that, but you look behind that power of attorney and you have that conversation, even though it's going to take a lot of time, and even though it's going to, you know, be, take time and talk. You're going to have to spend some time on it um, before you do that. I would suggest, and, and I know that um, you know there there may be people that disagree with me, um, but I really think that we have to be thinking about. Um, it, are there ways um, to assure that those? Um, and I understand, you know, if it's going to be, um, if it's going to uh, be used to maintain eligibility, the person has to have no ability to control those funds, um, but some way to protect those funds in a way. Um, and obviously, you know, you would hope that the trustee is the one that's going to be watching out for that money um, within the special needs trust area. But, um, you know, the, the line between those two things is becoming blurrier and blurrier. And, and I think that the first, the first avenue is to make sure that you're not setting up those, those uh, provisions without knowing for sure what the objectives of your client are. And, and that takes us back to defining who the client is. I would suggest to you the power of attorney is not your client. The client is mom. Even though mom may be, uh, you may be representing mom through a power of attorney, ultimately the power of attorney is only standing in the shoes of the real client, which is mom.
0: And that's interesting. And that, that, that's a whole nother, I wish I'd gotten into this earlier in, in our discussion uh, in, in representing. Uh, an attorney, in fact, under a power of attorney. If the power of attorney is otherwise valid and the principal is, let's just say, for, for chuckle's sake, 100% incapacitated, and you've got a valid power of attorney with complete gifting authority, do you just assume, absent a patent violation of fiduciary duties, do you just assume that the the fiduciary, the agent, is acting in the best interest or acting as mom or dad subjectively would have wanted them to act? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and as you ask that question, I can hear it in your voice because it's just such a contentious argument even among elder law attorneys. I will tell you, we've spent hours on the Aspirational Standards Committee trying to draft the new aspirational standards to try to explain what is the attorney's relationship to that beneficiary if they are incapacitated, do do I presume proper behavior by the um, power of attorney, by the um, attorney in fact, or do I go beyond that and make sure that that attorney in fact is acting it for the benefit of the beneficiary? How far does my obligation to that beneficiary who is incapacitated go? Um, I'm gonna to suggest to you that um, in most instances, I, I think in most instances, our power of attorneys are not going to be doing wrong by their principle. Um, but I think the first thing is we have got to be very clear in our engagement letter um, about, you know, and obviously I believe in rich, written engagement um, provisions, written engagement letters, or um, agreements in every case um, that we make clear to the trustee or to the attorney, in fact, that, they have a very very important fiduciary obligation and as the ACTEC commentators suggest those agreements with those fiduciaries have to include what exactly the attorney is going to do and if he finds out that they are not acting in the best interest of the client so that you ha- or the beneficiaries So, you have that in writing at the very beginning of the engagement. So, everyone is clear if this circumstance raises its head, this is what I'm going to do as an attorney. If you want to hire me, Mr. Power of Attorney, you have to agree that that is what your understanding is of what I am going to do. If in fact, I do not think you're acting in the best interest of the client or the beneficiary. So again, I think the, the, the clearest way to protect the beneficiary and to protect yourself is to make sure that your agreements contain those very specific provisions about what I am going to do under what specific circumstances and um, so that everybody understands that. And that's also an education, right? I mean... Education, obviously I believe that I'm a professor, but education is our best protection against um, abuse because I think nine times out of 10, the the 10th time we do have abusers, but most of the time we may have people that may be stumbling over things and that if they were really like told in very clear language what they can and can't do, they're, they're not going to step over that line, or at least they're going to be very careful that they don't. So education, 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 and in writing, in writing, in writing, that's kind of the the, the best way for us to protect um, against that exploitation of the elderly. Hi, my name is Amanda. I'm an elder law and a state planning attorney from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and the Trust Chimp Summit was one of the most helpful CLEs I've ever been to. My favorite part was that we didn't just talk about different topics, but we actually had breakout sessions where we worked on different problems so that when we went home, we knew how to apply what we learned. Um, So I highly recommend it. Um, You can check it out yourself at TrustChamp.com forward slash summit.
0: Of course, I'm going to perhaps be, stand guilty of, of, you know, hyperbole here or or I don't know what, but you know what my term is for an attorney who takes on an engagement of any consequence at all who doesn't get an engagement letter?
1: I hope it says they're stupid.
0: It's Well, I was saying idiot.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. To me,
0: that's just incomprehensible.
1: Yeah, I, it, it, well, first of all, I think it's incomprehensible that our rules don't require it. Right, that 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 just—I mean, obviously, our standards encourage it, but it it, may, it it seems absolutely crazy to me that that the model rules of professional conduct don't require it. But I would absolutely agree with you. Um, and we spend a lot of time in my ethics course um, with regard to the the LLM um, ethics course that talking about what those engagement letters contain, what what do they just absolutely need to have, you know, based on the kind of. Um, representation you are contemplating and how important, you know, a written, you know, explanation of all of that is, um, because otherwise people either A, don't know, or B, don't understand that I stand in a position of wanting to protect um, that beneficiary, especially if they're incapacitated, you know, from abuse, and you need to agree to that. Otherwise, I don't want to take you as a client.
0: So we've talked about this, and we agree that it's, it's a murky area, it's fraught with danger, uh, it's difficult to sort through the issues, and there's no clear answer you know, quite often. So what do we tell the listener? How do we summarize that into one piece of advice, other than maybe, be careful?
1: Oh, I, I, I think that, the, that if we put it into um, one piece of advice, it would be identify who the client is and who you're actually representing. Um, speak directly with that person, even if there is um, a fiduciary relationship that already exists. And thirdly, most importantly, get it in writing. Everyone needs to understand what exactly you are going to do, and more importantly, exactly what you're not going to do um, under certain circumstances. So, you know, know, identify, educate, and put it in writing. Okay.
0: I'm going to ask you something completely off the wall. (laughs) Okay. The jackbooted authorities are kicking down your door in the middle of the night, and they're telling you that you have to throw out everything that you have in your library, electronic or otherwise, but the Supreme Leader says you can keep one book or treatise. What's it going to be?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, you you put me in a weird position because, like, obviously, I would think I would need to keep my, you know, elder law ethics written by Becky and I, but. Um, just thought so I throw that in there. Probably I would want to keep the um, Matthew Bender book by Professor Morgan with regard to elder law. I think that that is probably the most comprehensive. And since they have to send me updates, that, that keeps me updated.
0: Is that a good book for those preparing for the CELA exam?
1: Mm. um yeah I, I, yes I think that that's a good book but the bottom line is Bob people that are preparing for the CELA exam you have just got to discover those areas that you do not practice in and you've got to spend intensive time educating yourself on those areas um, because the problem is I think that students go into that believing well I practice in this area and this area and this area and I really know those well but that SEAL exam is so comprehensive that you really do need to kind of identify those places where you don't, um, that you don't practice at all, and really concentrate on on getting ready for those. I think some students make the mistake of thinking, "Well, I'll just bone up on the things I do know, and I'll skip the other things," and that's just not gonna not gonna fly with the seal exam.
0: Oh, uh, and I think that's that's great advice. I mean, there is trust, trust taxation, and the like. I wouldn't even break a sweat on, but. You get me into some areas like housing issues and the like, and I, I would be lost. I sit right. on a, a state bar board of legal specialization and have had opportunity to review the the Sila exam. And uh, let's just say I said to myself, I'm glad I don't have to go back and do that.
1: <laughs> well, and, and I can tell you, I sit on the CELA, uh writing committee and. And I, I, I learn more than I really contribute to that committee every time I'm there. It's like wow, there's just it's just very, very,
0: very broad. Which also tells me something for those CELAs out there. That is a designation that is truly worthy of being proud of.
1: Oh my gosh! In this day and age, absolutely. Because um, now, how long ago did you take it, Bob?
0: Uh it's been what now? 12, 13 years?
1: Yeah. I mean, just think of how much new and expanded law there is in the elder law area. I mean, um, and, and we have a much lower passage rate than we had back then, um, which we could debate all day about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But um, it does mean that if you get a SELA, it really is something to be proud of. And it really does mean something. And and I would suggest that it also means that um, if I am going to be recommending somebody, um, I'm going to look for that designation because that designation means that that Bob Mason doesn't just know his own little specialty area, but that he knows a little bit about all areas of elder law, which means he can really be about a holistic approach for that client, and and that's what I want when I recommend somebody. Um, to um, an elder that needs a client needs an attorney,
0: We're running out of time here, but why don't you take a minute or two to tell us what you're involved with right now? Maybe tell us where to go get some information on the fall uh, special needs conference, uh, where folks can find you, whatever you want us to know.
1: Well, obviously, um, I would recommend if if you have any interest in either the special needs conference, or the fundamentals for trust administration and um, that you go to our web page um, obviously Stetson College of Law web page there you will find all of the information with regard to our special needs trust um, the registration is not open yet but it will be open very soon and um, I would suggest to you that you be very clear that that the hotel fills up very quickly so um, if you are interested in joining us um, register early and um, and often because <laughs> we're from florida and that's how we vote um, and <laughs> the second thing is if you have any interest in at least exploring the llm idea here at stetson um, it is an elder law llm it's one of the few in the country it is totally online except for um, we do uh, require you to come to the special needs trust um, and do an um, on-campus class right after the special needs trust um, But because we don't do special needs trust, we just basically have you come to that conference. Um, If you are interested in that, there is a webinar on April 26th um, at noon. You can sign up. It's a free webinar. It gives you all the information you could ever want to know with regard to whether you want to get an LLM. And um, and we're very excited to start a new um, year in August for our LLM program. And if anyone is interested, they can always reach me at law.stetson.edu And i um, be more than happy to talk to you about our LLM, um, talk to you about our special needs trust, or talk to you about our aspirational standards, or talk to you about just about anything. So. Um, please don't hesitate to give me an email or a call.
0: Now, does the LLM program operate on a uh, academic year basis?
1: It does. Um, usually, students can opt to take one, two, or three courses. Most full-time um, practicing lawyers taking three courses is kind of crazy, but we've had a couple that have done that. Um, a lot of people take one course a semester. It takes you a little bit longer. It's going to take you probably two and a half years to graduate. Um, some take two, um, but we have both fall, spring, and we have a, a usually one um, class offered in the summer if students are interested in taking summer courses.
0: So someone interested in coming in starting the fall semester, I guess, the, right. the fall semester, you know, now's the time to be doing that or is it too late?
1: Oh, No. Um, we, we have a rolling admission um, procedure, so we take students up until, I hate to say this because I don't want procrastination, but up until the end of July. Um, but again, if you have an interest in that, please um, go to our webpage to check that out, or um, you can attend our webinar um, by going onto the webpage and registering for the webinar, where you can hear all about it, and, um, you know, it might be something that you're very interested in um, attending. Yeah, we have several of your North Carolina folks who have completed that um, program, and so um, if you're interested in talking to them, Frank Johns was in our very first class, so um, I think Frank would be able to tell you if you have any interest um, in talking to him about our LOM program. Wonderful. And talk about intimidating, nothing like, you know, trying to teach somebody like Frank Johns (laughs) something about elder law. (laughs)
0: Let me close this with one very awkward question. You can answer it with a yes or a no. When it comes to the uh, special needs conference in the fall, and this may not affect you since you're a local person, I don't know whether you stay at the hotel or go home in the evening. Right. Do you miss the Don Cesar?
1: Oh, my God. Yes. But you know what? The conference is so much better at the Vinoy. The dawn was just such an amazing place to stay. But yes, I do miss the dawn. But I do think it's a better conference at the Vinoy.
0: And, and that could very well be due to just the facilities. But I keep telling myself I've got to get back down there on, on my own dime and stay at the the dawn. Uh, that oh, I yes. just love that place. So you talk yes. about ambiance. Uh, just yes. it's another Florida from from decades and decades ago. But, That's uh, right.
1: And, and interestingly enough, um, just a little, I know we're running out of time, but the Don Cesar and the vinoy and Stetson College of Law were all built at the same time, all to be resorts. And Don Cesar and obviously the vinoy have remained a resort, and we're now Stetson College of Law. So, Which is not ever, a
0: resort. <laughs>
1: which is not a resort, although it looks very much like a resort. So, um, you know, it has that same sense about it. So. And, of course, you know, we just have so much fun here. It's it's like going on vacation.
0: Well, Bobby, this has been absolutely great, and I'm so happy you took time out of your schedule to join us, and, and uh, I hope you enjoyed talking to us.
1: All righty. I did. It was fun, Bob.
0: Talking to Professor Bobby Flowers is always fun and interesting and informative. Something really hit me for the hack, though. It would have been easy to miss it, but when it hit me, I realized it was something I could use. Did you get it? Let's see if you agree. Here's the hack.
1: But I think the first thing is we have got to be very clear in our engagement letter um, about, you know, and obviously I believe in written engagement um, provisions, written engagement letters or um, agreements in every case, um, that we make clear to the trustee or to the attorney, in fact, that they have a very, very important fiduciary obligation. And as the ACTEC commentaries suggest, those agreements with those fiduciaries have to include what exactly the attorney is going to do and. If he finds out that they are not acting in the best interest of the client, so that you have the beneficiaries.
0: Bobby goes beyond getting an engagement letter. Frankly, that's what got me thinking. By all means, get an engagement letter. Both Bobby and I disparage people who don't. To me and Bobby, it's the height of silliness not to. But Bobby suggests a step further. We routinely encounter client matters in which the main point of contact, maybe the initial or only point of contact, is a guardian or an attorney in fact or a caretaker child, and the actual client is at some level maybe impaired. In that case, nail down in the engagement letter the ground rules. Identify the client. Who is ultimate loyalty owed to? Who is the main point of contact? What happens if there are disagreements with the attorney, in fact, or the agent? What happens if there are disagreements among siblings? What will you do if fiduciaries take certain actions? Drafting a template paragraph to have handy to insert into an appropriate engagement letter shouldn't be too difficult and certainly would be wise. I've got that on my list, and I'm going to get on it. Bobby, it was a great conversation. I plan on seeing her at Stetson in October. I understand the Stetson SNT National Conference website will be up in June. Again, thanks, Bobby. In the meantime, please tell others about this podcast. And if you're interested in what we're up to on an ongoing basis, go to TrustChimp.com and sign up for a free membership. And on that happy note, I'm out of here. trustchimp.com.